Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is One in Ten, Part One, where we'll discuss the topic of statistics over a series of episodes with special guest, Dr. Shannon Morrison. In this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Shannon Morrison is a staff specialist at Queensland Children's Hospital with an interest in research and in a fit of madness, signed up to a master's in biostatistics. Shannon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I think this series is going to be as useful for consultants and fellows as it is for the trainees preparing for the final exam, because statistics is a topic that can get a little rusty if you're not using it regularly. Yes. And if you're anything like Kate and I, then this is a very timely refresher. Mm -hmm. Before we start, though, we want to let everyone know that this series on statistics will consist of four episodes that we release over two fortnights because it's an enormous amount of content that we'll be sinking our teeth into. So let's jump right in. We're going to go for a gentle start with a discussion about the types of data. Shannon, can you break down for us the ways in which we can describe data? Sure. So at its most fundamental, data is either quantitative, so describing quantities, or qualitative, so describing the qualities of the data. And I'll go through each of these kind of in a bit more detail, but quantitative data, it's further classified as discrete. So that's numbers that don't have any intervening decimal points. So the number of children, you can't have 2.1 children, you can only have two or three. Not 2.3. Not 2.3, like the ads. <laughs> like the ads. <Yeah. laughs> and then continuous data. So that's data where any point on it could be continuous on a decimal scale. So things like height, you can definitely be 174.6 centimetres tall. Yeah, that makes sense. Qualitative data. So it's really just describing qualities rather than numbers. And you can it can be nominal. So this is where it's basically names. It's where each category has no effect on the others. So red hair doesn't imply anything else about brown hair or blonde hair. It just is a category by itself. Mm. Or it can be ordinal where it follows an order or there's a natural progression. So low, normal, high, where each one implies something relative to the others. Yeah. Mm. Okay. okay, cool. That makes sense. Okay, so now that we understand how to describe a data set, how can we then start to report on this data set? So reporting, this is where we come into descriptive statistics, which is when you report things like the central tendency, the variability and the distribution, which sounds like a lot of nonsense. So measures of central tendency, these are the things that you're more familiar with. So these are mean or the average, the median and the mode. Measures of variability, so they tell you if the central tendency is the middle point of the data, then the variability tells you how much it's spread around that middle point. Mm -hmm. So it's usually described as standard deviation or the interquartile range. How the data is modelled, so this is when we get into distributions, which are just ways of describing if you plotted all of the data on a graph, what does it really look like? The most common one that everybody sees is the normal distribution, which looks like that big 
happy bell curve with the big peak in the middle and two tails on the sides. But there are other distributions as well. So some you might be familiar with, like exponential distributions or Mm. binomial distributions. There's Mm. many, many, many other ones. But the best one in statistics is the normal distribution because most of the tests that we do Mm. are based on that distribution. Yeah. Mm. So, look, now we know how we can describe the data, but what's the importance in looking at all three of these observations? And why can't we just focus on the mean, for example? So the mean is where if you took all of the values, added them together and then divided them by the number of values, so it's the average. Mm. In a normal distribution, that's the same thing as the median and the same thing as the mode. Um, So the median is the absolute middle value, like if you ranked them in order of I guess, size, and then you picked the one that was bang in the middle, that's the median, and then the mode is the most commonly appearing number. Mm. In other distributions, though, they're not the same, so that's why it's actually really important to be aware of which one is the most relevant one to the data that you're looking at. So if you've got skewed data, say you've got a bunch of heights and you took them from three basketball teams and one gymnastics team, then that <laughs> gymnastics team is going to skew things a little bit down. Mm. So you're going to think that everyone is actually shorter than they really are just mm. because of the effect they have. Mm. So in that case, your mean will be more accurately like the average of those samples, but your median's going to be higher because you've got three basketball teams mm. pulling that yeah. data away. Okay, cool. And so the median would be probably the best way to describe that data yep. if you're looking for a measure of central tendency. Correct. Yeah, okay. So is it correct to assume that quantitative data is usually parametric and that qualitative data is usually non-parametric? Sort of. So when we say parametric, we're referring to the fact that the data can be described using certain parameters, so mean and standard deviations, and that it's following a particular distribution like a normal distribution. It is possible for data to be not normal and still parametric, but I think that's outside the realms of the exam, so we'll probably Mm. leave it alone. Excellent. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Okay, so look, moving on from measures of central tendency, how can we look at the spread of a set of data? So again, it depends on whether you're looking at the data in terms of the spread around a median or the spread around a mean. So you can look at it as quartiles. So you can look at the 25th to the 75th quartiles, which is, again, if you ordered everything from one to say 100 in the order of size and then looked at the middle half of the data, Mm. you'd have 25% on either side. And that's what a box and whisker plot is really doing. It does the 25th and 75th with the 50th is that line in the middle. And then you've got your little lines out to the either side with its little tails on it. But you can also describe it in terms of the um, variance or the standard deviation, which is the square root of the variance. Don't ask why that is. It just is. I remember (laughs) in preparation for this, I remember watching videos about it. And at the time I understood it and now thinking back, I'm like, yeah, it's gone. (laughs) Yeah. If you're really interested on YouTube, (laughs) someone can very patiently explain to you how that happens. And I think you could just say it's calculus magic and leave it alone. (laughs) (laughs) So why do we usually report the mean with a standard deviation? And why is it that when we talk about the median, we discuss it with the interquartile range? Um, It's because they're reporting different aspects of the same context. So the standard deviation, it's describing how variable the data is, but that's relative to a mean. Mm. It doesn't give you any information relative to a median or the 50th centile band. And an interquartile range is the opposite, where it gives you 25th to 75th. So it Mm. gives you an answer of range around 50th but nothing to do with the mean. Yeah, Mm. that makes sense because they kind of go together. Yeah, yeah, they're pairs. Yes, that's right. Mm. Okay, cool. 
So Shannon, now moving on, what is central limit theorem and why is it important? So I really hope you never get a short answer question on this. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck trying to describe it in eight minutes. I'll have a go. If you had an entire population and you took a sample of them and you were measuring a variable, and I'm going to pick height because it's the easiest, you could calculate the mean of that sample. And Mm. that, that mean is an estimate of the total population mean. So you're using that kind of as a surrogate thinking this sample is pretty representative of the whole population. Yeah. But you could have accidentally sampled all those basketball players, Uh in which case it's not actually that close to the population mean and you wouldn't know. But if you took that sample of different people from Mm -hmm. the same population over and over and over and over and over again and you repeated it many, 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 many times and then you plotted all of the means that you got from each of those samples on a graph, that graph would start to look like a normal distribution. Okay. And that's because of the central limit theorem. So everything is converging onto that one mean that is the true population mean. So the mean of the graph that you've made of yeah. all your repeated samples, it will start to have a really high peak and that will correspond to your population mean. Ah, uh, Okay. So then the standard deviation of that magic graph you've made is the standard error mm. of the mean. Okay. Starting to come back to me a little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> if you did it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, the true mean would rely within a range of values and mm. that refers to the confidence interval. So for a 95% confidence interval, if you repeated infinite samples from your population, the true value for that mean would lie between a range of numbers, which is your confidence interval, 95% of the time. Okay, cool. That makes sense. It does. So now that we know how to both describe and report on data, the next logical step seems to be how do we assess the significance of our data. Shannon, can you explain what we mean with the term hypothesis testing? So the basic concept is that it is way easier in life to prove something is incorrect than it is to prove that something is correct. Mm. So to prove something wrong, you only need to demonstrate that once and you're done. Whereas to prove Mm. something correct, you need to show that it's always true, which is a lot more work. Mm. So hypothesis testing, this is the basis of statistical inference. So it's where you're comparing groups to see if there's a difference. Pretty much you're going to assume that there's no difference between the groups and then you're going to try and prove yourself wrong Mm. is what you're doing. Here comes a bunch of definitions. Excellent. So so the null hypothesis is that there's no difference in the outcome of interest and the alternative hypothesis is that there is a difference or that your null hypothesis is not true. Okay. A hypothesis test then assumes that the null is true and then calculates the probability of getting your result or one more extreme than that if that really didn't exist, if there was no real difference. Okay, cool. That probability is your p-value. So the definition of a p-value ding, 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 (laughs) is the probability of the observed or more extreme result assuming the null hypothesis is true, which sounds weird. It does, but I think (laughs) you're about to explain it, so I'm okay. So by convention, we all know p-value 0.05, that's what we've set as statistically significant. If your p-value is less than 0.05, we just decide that that's justification to reject the null, accept the alternative hypothesis. So what we're really saying is that we have enough evidence to say that there is a true effect. Mm. What that actually means is if you had a p-value of 0.0001, then the probability of getting your data, if there really actually was no difference, is only 0.01%, which seems really unlikely. So it's pretty sensible to say, actually, your data is probably the real deal. Mm. Okay, Okay, cool. So this feels like a really good opportunity to ask you, what is type 1 error? So type one error refers to when you accidentally say there's an effect when there really isn't one. It's obviously not good, something Mm. we want to avoid. Mm. The probability of type one error is what we call alpha, 
ding, 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 (laughs) (laughs) which is also the value. That's what determines your significant p-value. So a p-value less than alpha is what's statistically significant. So using that convention we said before, conventionally alpha is set at 0.05. Okay, cool. So that means for anyone who's kind of thought ahead for a minute, if you have the standard conventions in your study and we accept that there's a 5% chance of seeing an effect when Mm -hmm. there really isn't one, by random chance, roughly one in 20 studies should sell a benefit when there actually isn't one at all. Ooh, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Mm. All righty. You've given me good food for thought. So (laughs) look, let's move on into an area that I know completely drove me insane when I was preparing for my part two exam. So we're going to have a discussion about the different parametric and non-parametric tests that we can use to calculate p-values. So Shannon, what's your approach to understanding which test gets used when? Oh, this is such a nightmare, isn't it? There's oh. like a million MCQs on this. Oh, I actually think I did have nightmares about this at yeah. one point. <laughs> <laughs> trying to just memorise, it's never going to work. Oh, so yeah. I'll try and give you some tips to try and remember things. Okay. First thing, parametric tests are the best. They have more power mathematically, which means that they have also more mathematical sounding names. If it sounds complicated, it's probably parametric. Oh, I like yeah. It. yeah. If it's named after a person, it's not parametric. Oh. Normally. And each parametric test has got a non-parametric equivalent. Mm. So I'll go through this stuff specifically now for all the ones that are in the MCQs. Mm. So if you had a very, very boring study, the most boring comparison you would ever do is comparing the mean in two different groups. And that has got a really boring name. It's called a (laughs) T-test. Sometimes your data's paired. So we're going to get to the next test. If you are looking at a difference, so say you're looking at a drop in blood pressure, then someone might have a starting blood pressure of 200 and drop to 180 and another person might have a starting value of 160 and drop to 140. You're going to want to keep those values paired together. Mm. You don't want to accidentally say that that 160 dropped to 180 because that Mm. doesn't make any sense. Mm. So then it's still a T-test, but it's a paired T-test. That's when you want to match all your samples without losing them. Okay. Okay. So they're the parametric names because they sound kind of mathsy. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) The non-parametric versions are Wilcoxon rank sum and Wilcoxon signed rank. How are you supposed to tell them apart? When people pair up and they get married, they sign a contract. So a signed rank is a paired test. And then the other one's just the leftover. Oh, that's like a really it. good way of remembering it. I like, like a it. Mental, you know. Like, yep. <laughs> yeah, you got to make it easy for yourself, don't you? That's great. Now we're on to the next one. What if there's more than two groups? The only mathsy sounding test left is analysis of variance, which we all just call ANOVA, not A-N-O-V-A, just ANOVA. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the parametric one. Now, you're going to have to just learn this one. The non-parametric equivalent is called Criscoll-Wallace. Okay. Okay, here comes another tip. If you're going to do a really bland study and you're looking at an alternative piece of equipment and comparing it to the standard, you're going to do a Bland-Altman test. So if someone was really boring and they wanted to look at a new finger, finipress, whatever it is, clear sight thing and compare it to an art line, oh. that's a really bland alternative mm-hmm. test. So it's Bland-Altman. Oh, like cool. Like that's awesome. Now... What about categorical variables? They're a little bit more complicated, but they don't have to be. If you've got small numbers, so say you only have two groups and each one's got less than 20 people, then calculating an exact value shouldn't be too hard and you won't break your computer fishing for results. So you can do Fisher's exact for that. But if there's more than one group or a really big sample or your computer is really old and it can't handle that many calculations or you just can't be bothered, then you would do chi-squared, which is another really mathsy sounding name, which Mm. means it must be useful and powerful. 
you can actually use chi-squared for really any of these. So anything that you would use Fisher's exact for, you can also just use chi-squared. They'll just give roughly the same result. The only real difference between the two is that Fisher's exact is exact. So it calculates mm. the exact probability, whereas chi-squared is giving like an estimate which okay. really doesn't mean much. And Fisher's exact is non-parametric and chi-squared is parametric. Eh. Ish. Ish. Okay. Just don't even... Don't even go there? Don't even go there. Okay. All right, no worries. <laughs> so on no that vein, um, can you make non-parametric data parametric and then apply a parametric test to it to get a better result? Absolutely. And that is normally what we would do. So we oh. really love parametric tests. So if it's not normally distributed, you can do some things to it to try and make it look normal. So you can take a log of all the data, which is called mm. log transformation, mm. and then see if that's normal. There's a few other things you can do as well. And then you can just do the parametric test, which is awesome. But sometimes you just have to suck it up and do the non-parametric one and accept that it's less powerful. Mm. Okay, so moving on, this seems a good time to talk about power. So what do we mean when a test is more powerful? So statistical power refers to the chance of a type 2 error. So a more powerful test has less chance of making a type 2 error. We said before that type 1 is accidentally saying there is an effect when there isn't. Type 2 is the opposite, so it's saying there's no effect when there really is one. Mm. Ah. So if you had the same sample size and the same value for alpha that we said before, the parametric test has a higher power than its non-parametric equivalent. Okay. All righty. So this has been a brilliant discussion so far and in very typical deep breaths fashion, we have run out of time long before we've covered everything that there is to discuss about statistics. Shannon, would you mind joining us for another episode to talk about more statistics? I would love to. Excellent. Today's episode saw a really interesting discussion about statistics. As always, if you have any questions, comments or suggestions or you just want to say hi, you can email us on deepbreathspod at gmail.com. We love hearing from our listeners and are grateful for all of the suggestions to date. Be sure to recommend us to your colleagues. You can find us on most podcast platforms. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.